This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. We will be joined later on in the hour by State Representative Mindy Dom. Then we will be speaking with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. And then, as is always our tradition, Artbeat for our final segment of the week. And actually, it's more than the final segment of this week. It's kind of the final segment of this show. Okay, we're not going to have a eulogy. Really, it's not. It's a celebration. And the reason is that next week, at this time, we will be beginning, we will be beginning a new show called Talk the Talk. And I will be doing that show with my colleague and longtime friend and longtime colleague, too, I should note, Buzz Eisenberg. Buzz, of course, is the host of the Afternoon Buzz here on WHMP. And beginning next week, he will be the co-host of Talk the Talk, our new show. Buzz Eisenberg, how to put this. Welcome to your show. <laughs> <laughs> it is so nice to be here, Bill. I was trying, you know, on the ride here, I just could, I got a little bit sappy I was thinking about... What do you mean you got a little bit sappy? All right, I am. I'm a little sappy. (laughs) No, I was thinking about what the Bill Newman show has meant, not just to me, but to this region. I've been thinking about how... Here's what I was thinking about. When I was first invited to do the afternoon buzz, you said to me, you know, there's 260 weekdays in a year. If you multiply that times at least a couple of guests every day, that's a lot of guests to come up with, and it's a lot of talking to do. And in fact, I figured it out. I've done over uh, 400 shows, which means at least 800 guests. And then I thought about what the Bill Newman Show has done over the last how many years? 12, 12 plus. Dozen plus. That's a lot of, a lot of learning, a lot of... Um, hearing people who represent us actually be able to talk to us about what they're doing. It's a lot of culture and art. I'm grateful to you, Bill. Okay. This is the buzz who is not sappy. We want everyone to be really clear on that before we start. (laughs) Well, I appreciate the buzz. That's really kind. And it is actually a considerable amount of work, effort, and planning to put the shows together, as you know. There are four segments in each show. Uh, Some guests have two segments. Occasionally, we go longer with that with a guest for one reason or another, but generally not more than two. Four segments in a show, that's uh, 20 a week, and that's, uh, uh, let's see, 50 times 20, 1,000-plus segments a year, 1,040 segments a year. That's a fair amount of planning to do, and... I know it's not always seamless, but it's pretty darn good about uh, how we put together the shows and how the guests come on and how the segments flow and how the weekly schedule works. It's a a lot of work, but it really is a labor of love because I I get so much positive feedback from the show. People saying, I heard so-and-so. Who was the guy who said this or this woman who was on who was saying something really interesting or this author? I mean, people talk to me, and I'm sure they talk to you about your show, too. And that, of course, makes it all just so worthwhile, and it's such a big payback. It does. It's a huge payback when people say that, but I don't even think I have to hear that because just um, being in uh, a studio with someone who has a measure of expertise and insight into a particular area just keeps you, as a lifelong learner, just keeps you... Learning and active. I've been really fortunate to be with Dan Torres throughout my tenure here, as you were with Monty and now Dan. 
um, who also are thoroughly engaged in what we're experiencing every day. And um, I don't know, it, it's, it's a, a good thing, particularly at our age, I think, but it's, it's a wonderful thing. And Bill, I want to thank you for um, giving me the invitation and the opportunity to work with you on Talk to Talk, which begins on Monday from 9 to 11 every weekday. We'll be able to continue um, this blessing that we've had, and hopefully listeners will enjoy uh, continuing it, only we'll be consolidating our two shows. The live broadcast will be 9 to 11 every weekday. Uh, we'll figure out how the rebroadcast will happen over the weekend, Saturday and Sunday as well. Uh, some of this is a work in progress, so... People bear with us a bit. We'll try to be as seamless as possible. It may not be perfect. We'll try to be perfect. We may probably fail as we... Does that mean I can't be sappy? <laughs> We're going to work on that over the weekend, but <laughs> we really are. Uh, we all should, no should note that th that day's program will be rebroadcast in the afternoon from 4 to 6 as well. So we are really pleased, of course, to have that time. And we think basically it's a different audience, 4 to 6, than from 9 to 11, uh, and, of course, uh, we do not expect, unrealistic to expect that people, most people would tune in at 9, at nine and be with us for the full two hours. So there'll be uh, the opportunity to hear later in the day that which you missed. We'll also try to make clear who the guests will be uh, and what our topics will be. We hope to do some fish wrapping because, well, we like that and <laughs> because we had to put this like to talk. We like to talk, we like social commentary, we like political commentary, and, and, uh, and again, without being sappy, um, I, I love to hear your views about um, the world that we live in, the politics that governs us, and it's, it's going to be a lot of fun to play with you, play with these ideas, and be able to talk over today's news. And once again, Dan Torres is going to be with us in the studio, and, and who is a well-read, really thoughtful guy, and he too will be contributing to our conversation. He will be. Dan is really terrific. We should also note that our regular segments, you have regular segments, and you will be continuing with those. For those who have been listening to this show at 9 o'clock, but not necessarily to your show at 4, you want to give us some idea about who some of your regulars are? Oh, We, we have a terrific lineup that I've been enjoying on Mondays. We uh, always have uh, Megan Zinn does what we call the writer's block, and she always has somebody who's either a an author or a, a bookshop owner or works at a bookshop or somebody who's just a reader talking about uh, what motivates them. On Tuesdays, we always have Jackie Walsh. We call it Playbill. At WHMP.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our regular segment with State Representative Mindy Dom. Representative, thank you for leaving the meeting you were just at. Perhaps you could tell us where you've been this morning already. Sure. Hi. Good morning to everybody. Um, thank you again for allowing me to be on and share thoughts and ideas. I just came from the Human Service Forum virtual legislative reception. And the Human Service Forum does these legislative breakfasts every year. They've done them virtually during COVID. And um, as I was describing, it's like speed dating, but it's speed lobbying. <laughs> so you're sort of 
when we were in person, we would be at a big table and there'd be like maybe 15 representatives from different human service organizations in the Valley. And each person gets about three minutes to give us their spiel of what their legislative priorities are um, for the coming year. And it's fantastic because you not only get this, you know, kind of wide variety of providers, but they ultimately are also repeating some of the same legislative priorities, which really gives us a sense of what is the most important thing for the um, Valley providers. And so um, I used to do this when I was at the Amherst Survival Center. I was like my, I was wearing the other hat of doing my three minute elevator pitch on what's the most important thing. And I love being on the receiving end of it and jotting down um, bill numbers that I'm planning on reviewing this afternoon and co-sponsoring the ones that I'm not already supportive of. So um, it's a great event. And it's because the Human Service Forum makes it happen. They let legislators know like four months in advance when it's going to be. Um, and so we all sort of make it our business for us and our staff people to be there to really hear what human service providers need in the area. Do they, did they provide anything in writing in addition to what they uh, say to you in those three minutes? Some of the t- Sometimes they do. That's a great um, question. Sometimes we ask them to send it to us. When it's virtual, I've been telling people, please put the bill numbers in the chat so that we can jot down the bill numbers, then we can do our research on what the bill number, um, what the bill represents and remember what they told us about it. Um, So, you know, sometimes they follow up and sometimes they don't. It's on us to really jot it down quickly. Representative Dom, I'm interested in this aspect of what you just said. This is lobbying. And I think a lot of people hear the word lobbying and they say, oh, that's a terrible thing. And it's insider kind of workings, legislative uh, phenomenon that we don't really understand and don't like. But in fact, you present it as a positive, a significant positive. Or am I mishearing you? Oh, no, absolutely, Bill. I mean, lobbying or I mean, there are legally, I think there's a difference between a lobbyist and an advocate. But in my mind, it's all advocacy. And how else will we know? And when I say we, I mean elected officials. How else will we know what's important to people unless they tell us? And by sharing what's important with you, to you, why it's important to you, and what you think we should do to, to address it, that's lobbying slash advocacy. Um, you know, my parents used to say when I was younger, they used to, uh, and I would like assume that they knew something. They would look at me and they say, I'm "This not is something we parents really, really try to imbue in our in our in our offspring." <laughs> Your parents really do know something. Okay, go. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but these these phrases come back to me now a lot. And one of the things they would say is, I'm not a mind reader. You have to tell me what you want. And I kind of feel like it's the same thing in, a, in electoral represent um, democracy is it's a, it's a constituent's responsibility to let us know what's important to them. And then it's our responsibility to act on that. And so these kind of breakfasts, even informal conversations with constituents on the grocery line where they're telling me what's important to them, that's what makes that's the first kind of low hanging fruit of being involved in democracy is letting your elected official know that you have a problem or that you have a concern or that you have a priority and you want us to do something about it. So it's definitely positive. I look at it as a very positive thing. In terms of priorities, I was hoping that you could share with us today what your priorities are for this legislative session. I think starting with what are the bills that you are introducing with your name on them as a sponsor that you are going to be advocating for. And then I'd like to get to other bills that you are supporting and or have lent your name to as an endorser or as, as a co-sponsor? 
Thank you, Bill. And thank you for including the second part because, um, you know, there's over 6,000 bills filed in the Massachusetts House of Representatives. And a lot of my colleagues, most of my colleagues, introduce incredibly smart, creative bills that don't need to be repeated by me or anybody else. And supporting their efforts, I really look at as part of my responsibility, um, not only as a rep, but to the district. You know, I promised uh, residents in the Third Hampshire that I would collaborate when I got to the um, House. And part of that collaboration starts with supporting and lifting up my colleagues' bills in addition to talking about whatever legislation I filed. Representative Um, let me interrupt for one second since you mentioned the 3rd Hampshire District, which is the district Mm -hmm. you represent. Uh, For those of our listeners who are not your constituents, tell us what towns you represent. As of January 4th, I now represent the entire town of Amherst, which I represented before, and half of Granby, precincts 1 and 2A in Granby. I share representing Granby with Representative Dan Carey. Um, As of January 4th, the town of Pelham was moved into the district known as the 7th Hamden District out of the 3rd Hampshire, which is now represented by Representative Aaron Saunders. So you lost Pelham, in essence. I did. I did. I lost Pelham. But Pelham will always be not only close to my heart, but I'll always be sort of representing Pelham in some ways because a lot of their concerns and issues are also concerns and issues of towns that are currently in my district. Great. And I have, you know, good friends there now, so you don't lose those friendships. Okay. Back, back, to your, back to your bills. Um, back to my bills. So um, a couple of bills that I'd like to highlight um, because I think that they represent not only my district's concerns, but like the concerns of where we are as a country right now. So I have a series of a couple of bills that I lump under the, the term inclusion. And for me, this is really sort of, I think we have in Massachusetts, one of the things we need to do in this session is we need to show like, for example, that we're not Florida um, and we or <laughs> Missouri. Um, we need to show that we proactively are trying to recognize make visible and support the LGBTQ community. Um, and we need to do that in a lot of different ways. And so one of, two of the bills that I've refiled and have filed since I got there, um, both with Senator Joe Comerford on the Senate side, one bill is we call Gender X, and this is a bill that would allow for a non-binary gender option on all state forms and applications in Massachusetts and would also allow people to change their gender on their birth certificate. So that's one bill. And the other bill um, in this category um, that Senator Comerford and I have both co-sponsored for the past four years, and we're hoping to get over the finish line this year, is to change the zoning in Massachusetts to allow for gender-inclusive bathrooms. Right now, there is no zoning that allows for that in public buildings, so public places like UMass have to apply for a variance to be able to make those bathrooms happen. They do apply for those variances. They do get those variances. But why should they have to apply for special permission for something that should be part of our zoning? So this bill would allow for the zoning for those bathrooms to happen. Another way to not only recognize and see people who may want and feel safer in those bathrooms, but also hopefully a way to allow those bathrooms to happen more regularly so that people can feel safe and seen on their campuses. So that that's one piece. I don't know if you want me to just roll through this, or if you want to take a break and no, ask I, questions. no, I, I would like to hear what the other bills are. I, okay. So on climate and environment issues, this past 
um, session, I was vice chair of the Joint Committee on Environment, Natural Resources, and Agriculture. And midway through the session, the chairperson left the House. And I call myself an accidental chair because I became the chairperson, but not because I was appointed to be chair, just good, you know, good luck in geography. Um, and what a great opportunity because I got to learn so much and get really deep into a lot of issues that come before us around farms, the environment, um, a little piece of the climate piece. Um, and so a couple of bills that I filed in this category, and some of which are really from my learning as in this position with the committee, is one is I'm the sponsor of the statewide plastic bag ban, um, which is a great bill and really sort of makes this universal ban across the state in all towns and communities to ban single-use plastic bags. Um, something that not only my constituents are concerned about, but my youngest constituents are concerned about. I met a Crocker Farm fifth grader um, and her friends in the past month who basically organized and got their food service to stop using plastic bags because they were so committed to this issue. Um, and when I asked them what was the biggest barrier to doing this, they said that the food service entity said time because it took a lot of time to open up the plastic bags versus the paper bags. And so these like five fifth graders um, said, well, we'll take five to 10 minutes off of our recess to help unfold these bags. Mm. <laughs> and so, I mean, that, that, that's the level of commitment that we're seeing on students. There and is so, hope in the future. Um, there is hope. There is definitely hope. There is. And you know what, Buzz? One of the things I learned from the students in my district is how much they really, how far ahead in their knowledge they are about the climate crisis, but also how much more they want to know. And so regarding this particular issue, um, we developed a bill to create a climate science education trust fund um, at the state, which is basically a place where money can be deposited. But we tied that money specifically to professional development around delivering climate science education K through 12. So one of the biggest barriers we've heard um, from professionals across the state to why that kind of education doesn't happen is because um, that our educators need more support, resources, curriculum to do it. Um, they haven't necessarily been trained in how to do it. So they also need people to come in and help them learn not just information, but how to communicate it. We worked with the Hitchcock Center around understanding this better because they provide a lot of this professional development. And so this bill I'm excited about because it sort of says, we're going to meet the professional development needs. We're not going to give teachers like an unfunded mandate. We're going to say, if we expect you to do client science education, we're here to help provide you with the resources. Representative um, Dom, I, could I interrupt yep. you go back to one thing? Uh, you became Please. an accidental chairperson. Are you still the chairperson <laughs> in the new in the new legislative session? Um, we don't know who the chairs are. Okay. So the time frame is that the leadership, including chairs and vice chairs, will be appointed probably sometime next month. Um, and so right now I'm still in that position because the new ones have not been appointed. And so I'll learn with everybody else in the House what position I have if I have a position in leadership um, probably towards the end of February. Who makes the so appointment? I want you to think of it, the speaker. Um, the, the speaker makes all the appointments for leadership. I want you to think of it as like a casting call in high school. Are you going to sing? Are you going to sing a tap no, dance? How no, are you going to no. do this? No, but you know how like the, the piece of paper gets posted into the bulletin board and yeah. all the students rally around. And sometimes you get the, the, the part you didn't 
you didn't really want, and sometimes you got a part that's much bigger than the part you thought you wanted. <laughs> that's kind of like what it is. <laughs> it's the committee casting call. Um, but I'll find out, like everybody else, at the end of February. So well, I was sure when Bill said he wanted to return to something, I thought he was going to ask, how do you know so much about speed dating? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, moving right along here. I'd like to remind Buzz this is a G-rated show, and we're just also Representative Dom, in case she had any any inclinations to answer that question. It's what I imagine speed dating. There we go. Um, That was was a great edit. Listen, uh, Representative Dom, other bills you want to tell us about that you're going to be advocating for in the few minutes we have left? Yes. Um, So I want to use one of mine, and I'm going to talk about another one, and I'll talk about the other one first. We need to make universal school meals permanent in Massachusetts. We did this during COVID. The legislature extended it for this school year, but it is not permanent. And myself joining with lots of other um, representatives, including the leader for this, who's Rep. Andy Vargas, who's a tremendous person, um, we need to really push this over the finish line and make sure that Massachusetts is providing free universal school meals for every child K through 12 in the Commonwealth. It checks all the boxes. It helps academic achievement. It breaks stigma. It feeds people. It provides economic relief to families. Um, and, it, you know, it feeds hungry students. Um, so this is really, I think this is one of the most critical bills we have to make sure happens. It's HD 766. And it basically puts in statute in law that we are going to do universal school meals. Um, in Massachusetts. Very, very important bill. Um, the other bill I just want to talk about briefly about health care is a bill that I'm on with Rep. Jack Lewis, which we're calling the Physician's Pathway Bill. And this would allow our immigrant neighbors who have been trained in another country as physicians and come into this country with good standing to be able to have a pathway to become physicians in this country right away that doesn't require them to redo their entire residency education. And currently that's what has to happen. And we're in, you know, so take Western Massachusetts. We're basically in a, in a medical health care shortage area, particularly around primary care physicians. But we have people in our community who know who are primary care physicians who might have been primary care physicians in other countries, been trained in other countries, and right now we're expecting them to go back to medical school, not only with carry that debt, but all that time to be residents in the field that they already are experts in. So this bill looks at a commission that was established a couple of years ago by Rep. Lewis's legislation and basically takes that commission's recommendations and creates a pathway for um, our immigrant foreign trained physician neighbors. And I'm excited about that bill because we we can talk about workforce shortages and we can, you know, cry about it and we can want to do something about it. And this bill actually does something about it at the same time recognizing the skills that exist in our community. So that's another one. We're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with State Representative Lindsay Dom, the representative for the 3rd Hampshire District. She is with us every month. We really appreciate your time, your leadership, and all you do for this community. Thank you, Representative Dom. Ditto, Mindy. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate both of you, and I'm looking forward to your show. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Demonstrators gathered in front of Congressman Jim McGovern's downtown Northampton office to protest the decision to send tanks to Ukraine. About 20 protesters held signs to denounce the decision, saying the U.S. should focus on diplomacy and negotiations instead. Packy Weiland of Massachusetts Peace Action helped organize the event in Northampton and says this only further escalates the war. Thousands of Hampshire and Franklin County residents are still waiting to hear whether they'll receive fuel assistance this year as Community Action Pioneer Valley works through a backlog of applications. Sarah Robertson has more. A record number of people have applied for fuel assistance this year, with more than 7,400 applications received as of this week. More than half of those have yet to be processed due to short staffing at the Community Action Office and complications with the new online application portal that was introduced this year. The Montague Reporter found that one in three applications processed so far was done so under emergency circumstances, meaning the applicant had applied for fuel assistance, hadn't received a decision yet, and was nearly out of heating fuel. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. And Winterfest in Amherst kicks off tomorrow with the Cardboard Classic at Cherry Hill Golf Course on Montague Road. Saturday's free one-hour event starting at noon is the beginning of Winterfest Amherst, 15 days of winter celebrations. There will be a large bonfire with s'mores and hot chocolate. The day will also include a kids' carnival, cross-country skiing, and other activities. A complete list of events is on the town's website. Most of the weekend is dry. Sunshine this morning, clouds this afternoon. Watch out for a few flurries late in the day, the high of 34 to 38. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 22 to 28. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 40 to 44. Mostly cloudy, low 40s on Sunday. A rain or snow shower possible in the afternoon. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los archivos nacionales han pedido a los expresidentes y vicepresidentes de Estados Unidos que vuelvan a verificar sus registros personales en busca de documentos clasificados luego de la noticia de que el presidente Joe Biden y el ex vicepresidente Mike Pence tenían dichos documentos en su poder. Los archivos enviaron una carta el jueves a representantes de expresidentes y vicepresidentes que se remonta a Ronald Reagan para garantizar el cumplimiento de la ley de registros presidenciales. La ley establece que todos los registros creados o recibidos por el presidente son propiedad del gobierno de los Estados Unidos y serán administrados por los archivos al final de una administración. Los archivos enviaron la carta a los representantes de los expresidentes Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George H. W. Bush y Ronald Reagan, así como a los ex vicepresidentes Pence, Biden, Dick Cheney, Al Gore y Dan Quayle. En otras informaciones, Estados Unidos está listo para hacer que las vacunas contra el COVID-19 se parezcan más a una vacuna anual contra la gripe, un cambio importante en la estrategia a pesar de una larga lista de preguntas sobre cómo protegerse mejor contra un virus que aún muta rápidamente. La Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos pidió a sus asesores científicos el jueves que ayudaran a sentar las bases para cambiar a refuerzos una vez al año para la mayoría de los estadounidenses y cómo y cuándo actualizar periódicamente la receta de las inyecciones. El panel asesor estuvo mayormente de acuerdo con el enfoque de la FDA. Mirando hacia el futuro, la FDA dijo que a la mayoría de los estadounidenses les irá bien si reciben un refuerzo una vez al año dirigido a las variantes más nuevas en el otoño. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. 
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our weekly segment, Your State, You, with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max, thanks so much for being with us this morning, as you are almost every week. I'd like to go to today's Boston Globe, which has a letter from one Max Page under the headline, In Contract Clashes, Teachers Unions Are Fighting for Their Schools. Tell us what points you were making in this letter that obviously the Globe thinks is important because of the prominence it gave a letter from you. Tell us what's in it and why. Yes, so this was actually a response to um, a really uh, out-of-control screed by one of the Boston Globe columnists, Jeff Jacoby, um, saying why teachers, educators should not be allowed to strike um, and while we were responding, me and Deb McCarthy, the vice president of the MTA, were responding about um, uh, to that that notion that somehow it would be sacrilegious um, to for workers to uh, exercise what is considered a human and labor right to withhold their labor to achieve the better schools that they're hoping for. Okay, so there are two pieces here, one of which uh, I think is easy. Uh, Jacoby was really arguing in part against representation, which I think it borders on the ludicrous. Uh, but the argument about whether teachers can strike, that is, or should have the right to strike, that is contentious. Uh, what's, what's the MTA's position on that? Well, so we actually have just filed a bill um, in the legislature to uh, – change a law that was put in place in 1919 um, in reaction to a, a Boston um, police officer strike. Um, and and they, then thereafter, the legislature decided that public sector workers would not have the right to strike. And so we are filing a bill um, filed by Senator Becca Rausch and Representative Erica Eiterhoven that would allow for the right to strike after six months of collective bargaining. So in other words, let's get to the table, bargain for six months, but if the, the employer just, just stalls, as we have seen over and over again in school negotiations, then the right to strike kicks in there after six months. And the argument fundamentally is um, that, that we make in this letter is that the relationship, there is a clear relationship between Massachusetts being the very best public education system in the nation by many different measures, and the, the 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 unionization of almost all our educators, most of them under the Massachusetts Teachers Association, that unions shown over and over across the country fight for the the funding, the the high standards that are needed um, for a high quality public education system. I understand the argument, and I understand the effectiveness, and I understand the responsible way in which the Massachusetts Teachers Association in particular has exercised this non-right in Massachusetts for teachers and, uh, and educators to withhold their labor. But I'm not at all clear uh, that the majority of people in Massachusetts come close to supporting the idea that other employees, or for that matter, all public employees should have the right to withhold their labor to strike and if you say hi, should police officers, law enforcement officers have their right? What about uh, firefighters? And there are others, of course, as well. What, what do you think that pushback is? Well, well, 
Well, let me just be clear. Our, our law actually excludes public safety personnel from this right. Um, those police, firefighters, the like, they do have um, um, binding arbitration. So it's sort of a way that they can resolve and end to a contract dispute at some point very quickly. One of the issues we have seen is that um, contract disputes have gone on for months, sometimes years in in uh, Massachusetts to large measure because school committees and their high priced anti union lawyers know that there's no there's no consequence to them for for delaying and therefore they can just keep delaying the lawyers can get paid more and the school committees could try to wait out the the employees. Right. Let me just say one thing. Let me add one thing to that, because in my uh, uh, time as a many, many decades as a uh, union side labor lawyer, I found it absolutely excruciating that the remedy uh, for a failure to bargain in good faith, you say they're not bargaining, they haven't moved, they've never made a serious proposal, they've never did on and on and on, and we've been at this for six months, nine months, whatever, and the remedy for that is you go and you have a hearing and you prove your case and you get an order that says the remedy is go and bargain some more. That's exactly right. I don't think people quite realize it. They think it's a level playing field. There's the union, the local union on one side, there's the school committee on the other, it's all equal. It is not. Um, the way it stands now, the school committees, exactly as you say, they know there is no real punishment for them doing what we call surface bargaining. Literally walking in, sitting at a table, looking at the sky. I think the, I think the lawyers look down and are calculating their billable hours and doing nothing to advance contract negotiations. So, and I want to be clear that the law that we're putting forward um, is would yield, I think, fewer strikes. Because from the start, the employer would know the clock is ticking and that they need to come to the table to negotiate a fair contract. And what you've seen in Melrose most recently, the Melrose local of the MTA, they took a vote on a Friday afternoon after 200 days of trying to negotiate with the school community. They took a vote on a Friday afternoon to say that on Monday or Tuesday morning, actually, it was after Martin Luther King holiday, they would go on strike. They had a contract by Saturday night. 24 hours later because the, the employer realized they better get to the table or there are real consequences. So that was a good resolution. It also, I do want to emphasize what they won in Melrose and other places is improvements that they've been asking for for many, many years, including paraprofessionals, our lowest paid, getting cl paid closer to a living wage. People have, we've been asking for this at locals across the state for years. The district says, no, we'll just keep paying the poverty wages. Well, our locals in Malden and Haverhill and Melrose elsewhere have said enough is enough, and they've improved the conditions for the paraprofessionals, and that improves the conditions for the students. Max, you want to do 30 seconds on question two, or should we save it for next week? I'll do 30 seconds just to say there's a big debate going on right now about how much the fair share amendment, the millionaire's tax, will generate and where it should go. Um, I'll just make this stipulation. It's to me remarkable when you have people who fought tooth and nail against the passage of fair share, like the Massachusetts Taxpayers uh, uh, Foundation, now wanting to claim where the money should go. We believe the legislature, we should set aside the money in um, so we know how much is coming in on fair share, and then through the legislative process decide where it goes, which part goes to K-12 education, which part goes to higher ed, which parts goes to transportation. 
This is a discussion we will continue next week with Max Page. This has been Your State You with MTA President Max Page. We'll be right back with Artbeat. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Bill Newman here. I was really excited when the afternoon buzz with Buzz Eisenberg joined the WHMP lineup. And I'm really excited now doing a show with Buzz. On Talk the Talk, we'll have fabulous guests and interviews. And as I promised the aforementioned Mr. Eisenberg, no more bad buzz jokes. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman, Buzz Eisenberg. Weekdays at 9. And again at 4. WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Your big day is almost here. After personalizing 160 invitations, selecting custom floral arrangements, designing a drop-dead gorgeous wedding dress, and a gazillion other not-so-small details, you can rest assured that you've chosen the perfect destination. The Roosevelt Room at Union Station, one of New England's most unique wedding banquet facilities. The finest food and services available for a once-in-a-lifetime celebration, second to none. The Roosevelt Room at Union Station, downtown Northampton, you go, girl. Get down with your hometown. A free online music festival featuring local and national artists and benefiting North Star, the Institute for Musical Arts, and the Shea Theater. Saturday and Sunday, January 28th and 29th. Some of our featured artists include the Indigo Girls, Rachel Price, Jamie Kent, Chris Smither, Martin Sexton, Suitcase Junket, Elon Jewell, Winter Pills, June Millington, and more. Tune in, getdownhometown.com. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. RiverValley.com. Co-op. Are you organized, detail-oriented, responsible, fun-loving, and a team player? The Northampton Radio Group is looking for you. We've currently got an opening for a part-time office assistant. The job is right out front, so you have to like people. A knowledge of Microsoft Office is essential, and a sense of humor is a must. Send your resume and cover letter to Office Position, Northampton Radio Group, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Mass., 01060. Or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The beat goes on. And this is Artbeat with Donabel Cassis, except that Donabel is on assignment, and therefore we are so lucky to have with us today as in for Donabel, uh, Kim Carlino, who will be the guest host this week and for a n- number of weeks going forward here. Donabel, as we said, is on assignment, 
Uh, Kim Carlino is a local artist. We're so thrilled you could be with us, and she has, Kim has with us today a couple of very special guests. Kim, the microphone is yours. Uh, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm thrilled to be filling in today. Um, today we have on the show Jason Montgomery and Michael Medeiros. Uh, so, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking about Michael's exhibition, We Are Gardens Haunted by Each Other at the 50 Arrow Gallery at Eastworks, uh, which was co-founded by Jason Montgomery. Um, but before we talk about that exhibition, I'd love to say congratulations to you, um, Jason, on recently being awarded a Mass MoCA Assets for Artists Fellowship, which includes a four-week fully funded residency at Mass MoCA. And you're one of eight Massachusetts artists to be awarded this honor. Um, I'd love to hear real quick before we talk about Michael's exhibition, uh, what you'll be working on given you're an interdisciplinary artist. Um, yes, so um, what's thank your plan? you. I, I appreciate that. I'm actually working on a show um, called The Death of Lake Kaliwa. Um, this show, I'll be working on it through my residency uh, at, at the museum, but then it's going to debut at Bombex in April. So that is that is a debut announcement. Um, so de the Death of Lake Kaliwa will be a um, kind of intermedium um, exploration of the Imperial Valley, specifically the Salt Lake, uh, uh, the Salton Sea. Um, as some people know, the Salton Sea is the remnants of what was a giant kind of um, lake that existed in that area until, um, essentially until colonialism happened and it radically altered the entire environment. So come out and check it out at Bombex. But I'm more excited about Mike because Mike is our amazing ceramicist at 50 Arrow Gallery right now. He's amazing. Yeah, great, great segue. I can't wait um, for that to debut at Bombix. Um, but so Michael is a poet, ceramicist, photographer. I would also say an artist organizer. Um, and you currently have this exhibition up. And I love this tagline. You have a collaboration of clay, words, and community amidst an apocalypse. So <laughs> you talk a little bit more about the genesis of this project and you know what we can expect uh, when we come to the gallery. Yeah, first off, I just got to give a big thanks to Jason for uh, allowing this space to happen, this project to like roll out in a very organic way from December 10th all the way to February 26th. That's when we'll wrap it up. But you know, it's really, it started in my hometown in New Bedford. Um, through a collaboration with the Haskell Public Gardens, which is a trustee of reservations property, and my pal, uh, Marcella Haddad, who, uh, one of my MFA friends. And we started this project, we were just kind of trying to create, uh, we created this world where something had happened. We didn't explain what to each other, but we were writing these letters back and forth to each other from two gardens. Like I had chosen the Haskell Gardens and she was writing from the Smith College Botanical Gardens. Literally, we were on my back porch writing, <laughs> handing the letters back and forth to one another. But we kind of created this thing where something has happened, and we're in these garden spaces, and we're telling each other what's growing, what's still living, what's changed, what's the experience of it, what's the soil. And so it was both this science fiction-y kind of thing, and also like almost like we got into some fantasy uh, writing elements, too. And we took that to the gardens, and we did a reading there. But I was also doing some ceramic work, too. and the idea of preserving the words and the stories 
upon the clay, you know, in a fragile environment where who knows how a book will survive, how it'll be passed along. But you find these clay fragments and rivers and woods, broken pieces, and you can piece together some ideas of the notions that are written upon them. So we just started, I started reaching out to different community members, friends, uh, gardeners, others, to give me their garden memories, ideas, poems, things like that. And then I would, I use like a traditional pit firing method to smoke the words upon the clay. So imagine you're a potter in this weird world, right? And you don't have many materials, but if you can dig local clay and can set some leaves on fire, you can smoke those words right into the pot. You can write it with liquid clay and it burns right off. Later on, you wipe it off and ta-da, you got something. And that's what the exhibit essentially is, a community of stories upon terracotta vessels. And is each one a separate story or do they go together? Some go together. Some are interlinked. Uh, others are just standalone. Very, you know, there's some big pieces. Jason wrote some beautiful pieces on a couple of pots. Um, some people, I took it to uh, 10 Forward Gallery in Greenfield and just kind of asked during this event, Ritual Grotto, that was run by Jason Curie, um, just to ask them to share their memories. And some people just wrote, garlic smell on my fingertips. Uh, a flower pot on a windowsill in Providence, Rhode Island, whereas other people really give these really deep, long stories about like family and community and friends and the gardens they've experienced. So it's really just, I'm letting them have free reign to write what they want to. And are the pots different colors? Are they different sizes? Tell us a bit about that. There are all kinds of different sizes and shapes of the pots, but mostly it's red and black. Um, and I have two methods. One is like coating the entirety of one pot in like a liquid clay slip and then carving through that and then putting it in the pit firing. The smoke goes, forms almost these little pencil marks on it. So it looks like you're writing in pencil, but it's the smoke and it stays there permanently until you fire it again, then it would go away. So that's one method. So that's red and black. And then the other one, which is more of the red background with the black writing is a, actually no, the black background with red writing, I should say, is we write on the words with the liquid clay Put that in the smoke and when it's done i just wash it right off and it reveals the bright orange of the terracotta kim back what's to you. kind of beautiful is see oh sorry bill no no go ahead Jason. like for me it's it's beautiful to see this even though they're not like a cohesive narrative written by people collaborating collaborating it's writing this beautiful like almost epic poem story of all these weird different voices coming together it's it's really it's really a wonderful, like, meditative space you've created, man. And that really is kind of what we're trying to do, like, create this this kind of grounded space. I mean, even if, if it's an imaginary apocalyptic world that we're writing, I kind of see it as our world is changing very quickly. You know, our environment, like, look at this winter. We haven't had much snowfall. It's been relatively warm. So things are changing quickly. So this imaginative world we've created is kind of just a, a means to an end of exploring the world we're sitting in right now and watching act differently. Uh, Mike Majerus, uh, we just have about a minute left. I'd appreciate you telling us for about 30 seconds where you do this work, where you, where, where you, where is your studio? And uh, again, one more time, please, where we can see this work. So this is exhibited at 50 Arrow Gallery in Suite 244 at Eastworks. My studio is over at Brushworks across, uh, just over the border in Florence. And, you know, I pit fire in a variety of places, garbage cans to big old dug pits. <laughs> and how long have you been a creative ceramicist? Uh, about five and a half years. 
And is ceramicist the right word? Is, is Potter also correct? I like them all as long as I get to play with the clay. <laughs> Jason, uh, final word from you. Um, just come on down. This has been a great kind of um, way that we wrapped our first year at 50 Arrow. Um, you know, with Mike coming in and bringing a lot of voices together, that was really the goal of our gallery. So it's, it's come together in such a beautiful way at the end of the year. So thanks, Mike. Thank you. And the hours when people can come and see this, Mike? You can come Tuesday through Thursday. Um, there is a, a, a gallery docent there from 11, or sorry, from two to four. And then Mike sets a variety of other hours. So keep an eye on our Instagram page. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Kim Carlino, Michael Medeiros, and Jason Montgomery. Thank you all. Thanks for bringing art to, your, to our gallery, to our community. We are all in your debt. Thanks a ton for chatting. Thanks, everybody. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea, too. Hit the ice all season long right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015-1400-1240-WHMP. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1050. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's